When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. There is an undeniable fact which applies to every aquarium. Every aquarium that we set up is an ecosystem. Now, ecosystems are fascinating dynamics which embrace life and death, reproduction and predation and growth and decomposition, the tiniest, least sophisticated of organisms and larger, more complex ones. Aquariums are like the epitome of this, the definition of an ecosystem is a biological community of interacting organisms and their physical environment. And an aquarium ecosystem is a set of interdependencies. In other words, it has different organisms living in it that interact and depend on each other. They can't survive without the ecosystem. If any part of the ecosystem or the system fails, the whole thing fails. The mythical yet sort of half-grounded in truth hobby nightmare of the tank crash is typically... Um, caused by a failure on some level within the ecosystem. Now, of course, as an ind- you know, as aquarium industry vendors, manufacturers, and so-called thought leaders, us humans love to apply descriptors of the natural aquarium approach we favor. You know, botanical style aquarium, botanical method aquarium, biotope aquarium, nature aquarium, reef aquarium, whatever. They're all somewhat different in their orientation, yet all essentially the same a collection of interdependent organisms existing together in a closed system. Each and every aquarium that we set up is an ecosystem. In fact, it's almost unavoidable. And yes, some approaches do facilitate the development and maintenance of an ecosystem better than others, like ours, for example. Never lose sight of the simple truth like that we just mentioned here, and you've made like, I don't know, 80% of the mental shifts required to be successful with botanical method aquariums. And there's still much to learn. And within our approach, there are many experiments which can be done. Now, I receive emails almost every day from hobbyists asking if they can use whatever in their aquarium. And the answer I almost always give, go for it. Yeah, just try it. And I don't feel the least bit irresponsible in telling hobbyists that. Look, just a decade ago, as I was formulating the launch of Tannin Aquatics as a business, I was still knee-deep in sourcing and experimenting with all sorts of botanical materials to see what would work in aquariums and what wouldn't. Most of it did, yet there's still plenty of room for experiments and innovations in this area. The reality is, you may simply have to experiment to know for sure what's practical for use in your aquarium. Experiment involves research, practical application, and, well, risk. Yeah, you could kill your fishes in the process. You could introduce toxins, pollutants, or other compounds into your tank. You could. Not up for it? Well, don't experiment. To be perfectly honest, I've had very few animal losses over many many years of experimenting with botanical materials that could be attributed to the materials themselves. Usually, it was because of some, you know, pollutants introduced from the botanicals, you know, lots of dirt or organics, which likely could have been mitigated through more extensive preparation or because I used something which I found at an arts and crafts store or something which may have been preserved with 
lacquers or resins unbeknownst to me at the time. Still, other losses occurred when I deliberately added ridiculously large quantities of botanicals to an established stable aquarium. In my opinion, unless you're utilizing large quantities of unprepared or otherwise materials known to be toxic to animals or fishes, or if they're from an area contaminated with pesticides or industrial waste, almost anything you can collect from a safe natural habitat is usable. Yeah, you don't have to purchase materials from Tannin Aquatics or any online vendor in order to have a successful botanical method aquarium. You just don't. For me or anybody else to assert this is flat out bullshit. You can literally use leaves and twigs that you collect yourself from your own local area, from your backyard, whatever. There's nothing inherently magical about the materials that Tannin or anyone else offers, except that, while well, I can speak only for myself, the stuff that we offer has been vetted and tested for safety with aquariums. Some of it comes from exotic locales, so it's it sounds different, it looks different, it's you know been tested in the aquarium hobby before. When we first started Tannix, I pretty much Tannin Aquatics, I pretty much knew that we'd be on the receiving end of incoming fire from a lot of people in the hobby. Uh, you know, the, we sell twigs and nuts and leaves, and well, that's uh, you know outrageous. It's super easy to criticize this business model. From day one, we had critics who assessed our business, its practices and products, and made the determination that everything that we could offer can be collected from the empty lot next door to their home and that we're essentially selling ice to Eskimos as the expression goes uh, you know a real gotcha kind of thing and of course as a business owner your natural inclinations to ignore protect engage or whatever and seeing the misinterpretation myth and misinformation about your area of expertise and your business per, you know proliferate is something that you almost have to engage on yet you have to temper it with a bit of self-awareness and logic too in my instance, I saw and still see little value in trying to tell fellow hobbyists from, you know, that the magnolia leaves or oak twigs that I offer are somehow different than what they can collect if they have the dual blessings of time and geographic fortune. It's not honest or helpful to do that. And quite frankly, I'm never concerned and never have been concerned about somebody saying, oh my God, what you offer, you know, is available everywhere. So, of course. As someone who's tried to be as open and honest about the stuff we've offered as possible over the years, I never really felt, you know, exposed by these assertions. Yeah, I mean, this stuff exists in nature and you can grab it if you want. Of course, that never stopped the self-appointed consumer advocate types from claiming that we're simply trying to rip off or exploit unsuspecting hobbyists. Psst, what happens when you try new stuff? Repeat newsflash here. As we've mentioned probably, I don't know, a thousand times or more in this column and in this podcast and in our columns and, you know, and uh, blogs over the years, of course you can collect your own botanicals. We encourage you to do it if you can. However, if you can't or if you don't have access to them or the inclination to do it, that's what we're here for. Despite how delicious it might be for conspiracy-loving keyboard warrior types, there's no secret or mystery that we're trying to perpetuate to keep you from discovering this. You can order some of this stuff from arts and craft stores. You can. Some of it is treated with lacquers and resins. It's brought in for other purposes. You can take your risk. You can experiment. Maybe it'll work. Many of the things you see on my website and every website that sells botanicals are also used in other industries. And if you're resourceful enough, you can find sources of these things. Again, some of these are treated with chemicals and preservatives, which could kill your fishes. I had the good graces of having a good uh, background in the importation of things from my coral business. So I had contacts in tropical countries overseas. I was able to trace the 
items to their, you know, what they are really scientifically and botanically, find collectors that specialize in these things through my coral connections, and was able to import them directly from the source without, before they're treated for, you know, use in other areas. But again, this is not really a newsflash. Proper identification was half the battle. Proper identification is an important part of utilizing botanical materials in your aquarium, whether you collect them or buy them from us or someone else. We've tried a lot over the years, trust me. And we've seen a fair number of them being given, you know, goofy names. In fact, almost every one of our product names are not even fictitious names at all. We're not trying to protect what they are. We're trying to identify them. Uh, and I think most responsible uh, businesses do that. We utilize the actual species name, tongue-twisting or linguistically ugly, though it may be. I mean, dragiopods? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> you know, we try to use those scientific names of the plant or tree or shrub, which the botanical comes from, and identify the geographic sourcing as well. It's important. And as a hobbyist, I certainly understand that this hobby can be pricey and that anything we can do to save a few bucks is not a bad thing. Not everybody sees the value in paying, you know, five to eight dollars for a bunch of twigs or cones or whatever if they have a clean, reliable, easily accessible source for these things in their own neighborhood. I totally get that. I'm, I'm sure a lot of vendors probably get that, but I don't know. But what's different about the materials that we offer? In a nutshell, not too much, at least from a capability standpoint. Again, our stuff is not magical. It's not manufactured in some factory or something. There's no special powers that our botanicals, you know, create. So is there anything different? Well, yeah, I suppose. I mean, you don't have to go to the time and effort to search, identify, collect them, and sort them yourself. Sure, this is not necessarily a tedious process, but it can be an inconvenience for many people, especially those hobbyists who live in urban areas where access to clean and reliable collection sites is limited or otherwise problematic. Or for those who simply don't want to spend their free time rooting through that nearby vacant lot or urban forest area in an attempt to save a few dollars. And of course, with the stuff that we offer or stuff you purchase from other vendors, you likely get them delivered to you in a nice, tidy, you know, tidy little package. And most responsible vendors do study, test, aggregate, and curate stuff from all over the world. And they go to great lengths to obtain this stuff so you don't have to. They buy it in quantities. With many vendors, you get the confidence that comes with knowing that they were ethically, sustainably sourced by vetted suppliers and that the materials were not collected from areas which are polluted or insecticide-laden or use slave labor or whatever. All super important considerations when utilizing botanical materials in your closed system aquarium. Oh, and in our case, you get the support of a company who, you know, has a guy that lives, breathes, and sleeps botanical method aquariums. You get instructions, you get the community, you get the information provided by our, right now it's like a thousand or so podcasts and blogs on every aspect of this stuff. We think that this defines value added in this context for sure. It's got to be worth something, right? But but anyway, this is not about me or, or Tannen or whatever, because that's, as you can tell, it's less and less emphasis and uh, I've been placing on selling stuff and more about talking stuff. I Don't ask me why, but I've, I've lost some of the interest in the sourcing and coming up with all kinds of new stuff in favor of talking about technique. Um, it's, a, it's a weird thing that I arrived at and I'm not sure why, but that's where I'm at. Well, anyway, maybe this stuff is worth something to you. Maybe not. Maybe you simply want to collect your own stuff, period. Maybe you've had great success or, or with or access to something that we don't. And judging by the number of, have you tried blah, 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 or I have a whatever tree in my yard and was wondering if they're usable in the aquarium emails that we received every week, it's obvious that there is enough interest in this DIY kind of process. And again, we say go for it if you can. Unfortunately, as I mentioned previously, to determine the suitability of the leaves you're considering, you'll simply have to experiment with live fishes. Not something everybody wants to do, 
But in reality, the only real way to determine whether or not the leaves you're playing with are problematic. You can certainly make use of Google, Wikipedia, and other online botany sites, or even the local college library to determine if there are known chemical toxins in the leaves you're considering. Here's a tip. Oak, beech, and other deciduous trees have been used by hobbyists for some time and would probably be good ones to use in a DIY-type approach. You may need to consult someone with a botany and or even a chemistry background as well. I spend a lot of time reaching out to various people I know that have that kind of background with this information, and it was time well spent. In the end, it was, though, it was up to me to experiment and put my fishes in harm's way to determine if various leaves and botanical materials were suitable. Oh, and here's a generic tip about collecting leaves with consideration for aquarium use. Of course, once you've determined uh, if they're safe for use with, with fishes, uh, a generic tip here is to use leaves that have naturally fallen and dried up. These leaves are dead, dry, and have been depleted of much of their natural sugars and other living matter that can essentially become pollutants or um, you know, bioload as the, uh, you know, the leaves die in the aquarium water. Uh, and that's a big, uh, big consideration, right? In a closed system aquarium, you can essentially overwhelm uh, easily with the large influx of this material. You don't want to overwhelm your aquarium with a lot of organics caused by using you know, non-dried leaves. It's a hugely important step, in my opinion. And of course, it being autumn, that's a good time to start collecting leaves for your aquarium. Now, a lot of people, again, overlook that dry part when they're collecting leaves. Many leaves have so much in the way of sugars and other compounds bound up in their tissues that all this stuff simply leaches into the water if they're not naturally fallen and depleted. And although I'll use magnolia leaves or loquat leaves and stuff like that when they're a little bit fresher, they're always naturally fallen leaves. I don't pull them off the tree, which means that a good percentage of those sugars and other compounds are depleted. With magnolia, there's also that little cuticle, which keeps them a bit, I don't know, fresher longer. But I also feel that it controls the output of less desirable stuff in the water. This is just my weird armchair theory. I don't know how many, any, anything to back it up, I, but I haven't experienced nitrate or phosphate issues when using these items. On the other hand, I think there is room for experimentation with fresh green leaves as well of various species. It's worth a shot. Sometimes you'll be the first hobbyist to take the plunge trying something new. And that could be scary to some people, for sure. Have you ever felt a bit nervous when contemplating some new idea for your aquarium? You know, the one that no one ever tried before. The idea that everybody says can't be done or won't work or is destined to fail. Or the one that simply flies in the face of what's been considered the way for so long. I mean, there's a chance that you could be the first hobbyist to pull it off. Or, more likely, the first hobbyist simply to try it. And I suppose you could be the first hobbyist to try it and fail, too. And it could all be a bit scary. First. Well, first is a powerful word, isn't it? Throughout our lives, we're taught that it's good to be first. You know, winning the race, coming in first, being the first in line, the first one to finish our homework, whatever. In the aquarium hobby, however, first sometimes carries a little more baggage with it. A little extra challenge, right? A lot of scrutiny, skepticism. When you're the first hobbyist to keep a challenging fish or proffer a different way of doing things, you have some serious responsibility. Responsibility to the animals, the natural environment, and even tougher still, to the hobby establishment. It's a heavy weight to shoulder for a lot of people. The true visionaries in our hobby have always suffered the criticisms of those who came before them. I guess it's human nature to question the views of newcomers to our little hobby utopia. If you're pioneering a new technique, keeping an animal previously thought unkeepable, or worse yet, challenging a long-held hobby truism, the fact is you're likely to take a beating. 
or at the very least hear a lot of hushed whispers when you walk into the room. You know what I mean? That's kind of sad, isn't it? The fact is, though, somebody has to be the first. Somebody has to dip their toes in the water trying that new technique or trying to keep the fish once thought impossible. Someone has to taste the berries for the first time. Look, look at a guy like Jack Watley, the discus guy. He was, a, he was breeding multiple strains of discus on a regular basis back when most hobbyists were just happy to keep one alive. He single-handedly unlocked so many mysteries of this fish and shared his findings that it made it possible for aquarists worldwide to successfully keep and breed them. I remember uh, not too many years ago, a good friend of mine named Matt Peterson, he succeeded at spawning and rearing a fish called the ornate filefish. This was a marine fish that would pretty much expose your neck to the chopping block of fellow hobbyists if you dared even to try to keep one. You still take flack for keeping them even now. It was considered nearly impossible to keep an obligate coralivore, supposedly feeding only on live coral polyps, specifically stony coral polyps, you know, the expensive ones. Well, Matt not only believed that you can keep and breed these fish and acclimate them to other foods and so forth, he defied the naysayers and he actually did it. He bred them. It was a major achievement in the marine fish breeding world at the time. It's still pretty impressive for a fish like that. But it's emblematic of courage. Courage, my friends, and conviction. And the strength to endure scrutiny, criticism, and those naysayers who call you foolish or brash for even trying. If you have those traits and a good idea, go for it. On the other hand, there's nothing wrong with a bit of healthy skepticism or peer review. Preaching something that's contrary to conventional wisdom is one thing. You know, an aquarium idea like an aquarium functions beautifully when filled with decomposing leaves, biofilms, and fungal growth. That's us, right? It challenges us to rethink our long-held beliefs. However, advocating an idea that in most cases will cause harm to our animals, you know, like, oh, there's no problem letting different species of, you know, embuna hybridize and release them at random to the local fish store for sale. That's another thing entirely. And proffering advice that's downright foolhardy, you know, like, ah, we should teach our kids to hand-feed piranhas. Well, that'll justifiably qualify you for an assault online and in person for just about anybody in the fish-keeping community. However, those are extremes of absurdity. Trying something that hasn't been done before is an entirely different game. And one you should consider playing if you're already, you know, here, if you're ready to do it. I think many of you are. And many of you are trying different things every day. If you're ready... If you think it can work, if. Look, I'm not discouraging you from testing a theory or even a really radical new idea. What I am encouraging is responsible experimentation. Share your data. Force progress. Where would we be if hobbyists continue to believe that the undergravel filter was like the only way to maintain a healthy aquarium? Or if we never tried fragging a stony coral? Or if we were afraid of that tinted water? I mean, (laughs) radical steps are often necessary for change. Besides, who cares if people laugh at you once in a while? Not giving a flying fuck is great for the soul. Trust me, it's gotten me through these last 10 years with Tannen. I leave you with a favorite quote I'm going to read to you. It's rather cliched, yet perfectly appropriate, you know, quote from Steve Jobs, the late Apple co-founder and visionary. It's It's quoted all the time, but it goes like this. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of other people's opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. It's okay to be the first. It's okay to look at the hobby a bit differently. It's okay to push the outside of the envelope. Flying in the face of conventional aquarium hobby wisdom is a tough but entirely passable road if you've got what it takes. 
Perhaps a rather lonely, sometimes bumpy road filled with the occasional obstacle or two, but totally worth the journey. Take it. The risk of the new just doesn't really seem all that risky when you consider the potential gains that could be had. Stay brave. Stay determined. Stay curious. Stay unique. Stay undaunted. Stay engaged. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from 10 and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on that next installment of The Tint.